Hey everybody, this is the ProGov Podcast. I'm Alexis E. Coney. Today we have a great segment on tax and revenue policy and a conversation with Amy Hanauer, Director of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. ITEP is a nonprofit, nonpartisan tax policy organization that conducts rigorous analyses of tax and economic proposals and provides data-driven recommendations on how to shape equitable and sustainable tax systems. ITEP's expertise and data uniquely enhance federal, state, and local policy debates by revealing how taxes affect both public revenues and people of various levels of income and wealth. Thank you, ITEP, for being ProGov 21's Partner of the Month. We're excited to share ITEP's recent research, a 2020 publication, State Options to Shore Up Revenues, and improve tax codes amid pandemic. In other good news, and maybe you've already noticed, the ProGov podcast upgraded its audio recording equipment. And interviewing Amy with me today is Walker Kahn. Walker is a JD PhD student at the University of Wisconsin and a leader on the ProGov 21 team. And all of us here at ProGov 21 are excited to welcome Amy Hanauer, the Executive Director of ITEP and Citizens Tax Justice. Before becoming executive director of ITEP and CTJ, Amy founded Policy Matters Ohio, a nonprofit think tank that has helped Ohio establish a state-earned income tax and restore collective bargaining rights for public sector workers, to name just a few of their many accomplishments. But Amy will tell you more about that. We asked her to get started by telling us a little bit about the amazing career she's had so far. Here's Amy. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for that question. So um, like many people in their 20s, I had a huge number of jobs in my 20s because it was hard to get something permanent that paid the rent and that, you know, that that I could stick with. Um, so I, I bopped around a little bit, but eventually landed in Wisconsin working for then state Senator Gwen Moore, who's now in Congress, which was a wonderful introduction to um, racism and sexism in public policy. At the mm. time, Governor Tommy Thompson was sort of defunding welfare and making a lot of punitive, adding a lot of punitive requirements to welfare. And um, Senator Moore was the um, leading voice trying to hold back the flood. And from that, I became just much more interested in economics in general. And that was when I moved to the Center on Wisconsin Strategy, which I guess is now called COWS only, where I really, I really was drawn to the state of working Wisconsin um, project that just kind of really clearly demonstrated to legislators when I was in the legislature, uh, working in the legislature, that really just clearly demonstrated that you know, we had an economy that wasn't working for a lot of working people in the state of Wisconsin. And so for cows, I ended up opening a Milwaukee office and working directly on a project on the Milwaukee Jobs Initiative that was helping to place women who were exiting welfare into non-traditional careers for women um, in manufacturing, printing, and construction at the time. And it was a great set of work. I eventually moved to Ohio for family reasons, and that's when I started Policy Matters Ohio. Starting up, founding, and opening two Policy Matters Ohio's offices. Yes. Can you talk about your transition from that part of your career into your leadership in ITEP? Sure. Um, Yeah, so I think when I got to Ohio, I thought I would just work for the cows of Ohio, and there really wasn't a cows of Ohio. And that was when I sort of sat down with leaders in the labor movement and um, community organizers to get together and and start Policy Matters, which I did for um, 20 years. And it was great. I think it was a great contribution to to the state of Ohio. Amazing people are running it now and and continue to do great work. But I just saw that there was a real 
just a huge amount of talent in Ohio and a lot of younger leaders and more diverse leaders who could clearly take policy matters in new directions and that it would make sense for me to kind of think about moving on and giving them that space and, and taking on something national. So the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, ITEP, which people can find at itep.org, is a great policy research institute. We have this amazing micro simulation model, which enables us to tell you for any um, state or federal tax change anywhere in the country, how that would affect people at different parts of the income scale all over the country. So um, at the state level, we can't get down to local level, but we can get down to state level. So we're able to demonstrate that when we when we cut income taxes, that primarily helps really wealthy people. When we raise sales taxes, that primarily hurts lower income families, but that we can use tax codes to really bring about much more economic and racial fairness. And our model really demonstrates that better than, than anyone else's in the country. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Given your expertise in state tax, workers and wages, racial and economic equity, and all of these other areas you've developed across your career so far, what do you wish that all legislators and state-level policymakers understood about equitable revenue generation and state tax? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think that the that the clear thing is is a little bit what I said before. We can use tax codes to bring about more economic equity even before we start spending. So we can use tax codes, particularly if we focus on income taxes, wealth taxes, which of course are are relatively new and and you know still being figured out, or corporate taxes. We can raise revenue in ways that actually reduce inequality before we even start spending. And it will not only reduce economic inequality, but it will reduce racial inequality. And then we can use the tax code and the way we spend tax revenue that's raised in ways that really also continue to contribute to equity. And that can be through refundable state level or local level tax credits. But it can also just be by making sure that we have really strong public services, which are, you know, which which can lead to decent pay for the people delivering those services and can lead to great things that American people need all over the country. Mm-hmm. So given these these tools and ways to bring about change, what do you think some of the most pressing issues that we're currently facing in tax and economic policy are? Well, I think that what we're seeing with the, the cash payments and the extension of the child tax credit in the American Rescue Plan, we see that we have a tool that can reduce child poverty by 45%. It's incredibly powerful, and we can use the tax system, the tax code, to deliver those those resources to families. And so that's, I think, a, a really powerful learning that can be added to at the state level by having refundable earned income tax credits, mm-hmm or by having their own add-on child tax credits, and that can really strengthen the, the federal program. But I also think that we're just seeing that tax policy, particularly the Trump tax cuts that were passed in 2017, drastically increased inequality. They gave a $50,000 tax cut to the wealthiest 1%. And um, they cut corporate taxes, which, you know, despite a supposed 21% corporate income tax rate, corporations on average pay about 8% of their profits in taxes. So we're really just not collecting those taxes. So I think it really reinforced the message that we need to close loopholes and really collect the taxes that we deem appropriate so that corporations and very wealthy people can pay their fair share and we can kind of have an economy that works for all of us. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks, Alexis. Hey, Amy. Um, so ITEP pr promotes common sense tax policies that raise revenue in an equitable and sustainable way. What resources does ITEP provide to help achieve progressive tax design at the state level? Yeah, that's a great question. So there is an amazing network of state think tanks. There are actually two amazing networks of state think tanks. One is called the State Priorities Partnership, and it's sort of run out of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And the other is called the EARN Network, and it's run out of the Economic Policy Institute. And in many places, it's actually the same group that plays both of those roles. And so ITEP, as I mentioned, has a micro simulation model that enables us to tell, tell you for any tax change that's proposed, you know, who's going to pay more and who's going to pay less. And we work with the amazing researchers in, in those state research networks to distribute the data that we learn about. So people will contact us um, from one of these think tanks. Policy Matters, where I used to work, is, is one of these think tanks. And they'll say, look, our governor is thinking about raising the income tax or our governor is thinking about getting rid of the income tax. How would that play out? And then we will kind of run the numbers as those proposals go through the legislature and get modified. We'll continue to run the numbers for these state partners so that people on the ground can really bring this information to to legislators, to journalists, to citizens, to activists, and say, you know, let's let's demand a, pol a tax policy that's actually fair for all of us. So the ongoing pandemic has exacerbated longstanding economic inequalities at the local, state, and national level. How has COVID-19 shifted or underscored ITEP's policy research priorities? That's a great question. I think that it has really brought to light things that many people already knew, but just the many inequities in our economy that working class people bear the brunt of, that black and brown people bear the brunt of, that we have both because of occupations that don't have very many benefits associated with them, don't have paid sick leave associated with them, don't have the ability to demand personal protective equipment. We saw that many people were incredibly vulnerable, both in terms of their health and economically to the ravages of this recession, while many other people were able to, you know, zoom into their meetings and keep their job and keep their income the same as it was before and really not be um, particularly, you know, just not, not suffer nearly the same ill effects. And so I think it really helps to just highlight how much we need to use the tools of public policy to deliver more equitable results for people, not only tax policy, but also, you know, just basic worker rights and ability of workers to have some voice in the workplace to negotiate for things that will keep them safe and keep them financially healthy. What policy research projects can we anticipate from ITEP in the coming months and years? particularly on municipal finance, we have a bevy of interns right now who are gathering data from 128 cities around the country to determine what happened to their local finances as a result of this recession. Then starting this week, we are going to be rolling out four really important papers on race in the tax code. We've incorporated race into our micro simulation model so that we can do a better job of describing how taxes are inequitable, not just across income, but across race. And of course, some of that is because Black, Latino, and Indigenous people are more likely to be poor. And so the economic 
economic inequities in our tax code are particularly likely to affect people from those communities. But it's also the case that there are inequities even among people at the same income level with with very similar household circumstances. You still may see real disparities between what a black and white family may pay in taxes. The new book, The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy Brown kind of digs into some of this. But our set of reports that is going to be coming out over the next month and a half will also be really shining a light on that, particularly when it comes to state and local tax policy. So speaking of some of some of the reports from ITEP, we want to talk a little bit about a report that will be the featured policy report for ProGov 21 in April, and that is State Options to Shore Up Revenue and Improve Tax Codes Amid Pandemic, which is a 2020 report by ITEP, and it's written by Dylan Grunman O'Neill and Megan Weehy. And it's really a cool document. It's comprehensive and it offers information on personal income taxes as responses to COVID-19, corporate income taxes, where to focus sales and consumption taxes, and many more. It really gives on. And so from this report, I'd like to ask, how has the COVID pandemic impacted municipal revenue? Are there programs available to help them? Yeah, great. No, Meg, Meg Weehy and Dylan Grumman O'Neill did a great, great job on that report. And it was really released in very real time, just as this um, pandemic was getting underway and as it was beginning to become apparent how it was going to affect state and local finances. One of the things that we know is that a lot of localities rely very heavily on property taxes from large employers. And of course, over the last year, lots of large employers have been working like crazy to renegotiate their leases, reduce their actual physical footprint in urban communities and have their employees work primarily online. And of course, some of that was necessary during the pandemic, but some of it is is pretty complicated and could have some very worrisome implications for urban finances where, you know, for cities that rely on that real estate market, especially since in many ways over the past several decades, we've prioritized downtown redevelopment over neighborhood development and things that local residents actually need. And as a result, we sort of sometimes have a glut of downtown real estate for corporate needs while we have really neglected and, and under-invested in housing stock for low-income residents of cities. So it's very worrisome. As I said, we've got a deep dive into it that we're going to be getting out this summer, along with Howard Chernick, who's a emeritus professor at CUNY, City University of New York. So we're digging deep into it, and I think that there's there's a lot to be learned. I guess if I could say one more thing that I think is really interesting is that some localities, some states and some cities rely more heavily on taxes that affect the wealthy. And we have had a very K-shaped recovery where many wealthy people have done just fine, have even done better than they'd been doing prior to the recession. And many low-income people have been doing much worse. And one of the things that we're finding is that if you have a progressive tax code at this time where you more heavily rely on resources from the well-to-do, you actually are better positioned in this recession. Whereas if you are relying primarily on regressive taxes, that puts you in a tough boat when low-income people lose some of their income. So it's 
One more reason among many to make sure that your tax code is actually raising revenue in a progressive way. In the face of these budget shortfalls, should municipal governments focus on raising revenue for households and businesses? You know, there's a lot of like worry, like, okay, oh, we've had, a, we've had a recession and maybe some people are struggling or maybe some businesses are struggling and we shouldn't mm-hmm. have adequate tax policy at a time when people are struggling. Well, the fact is that if these taxes are based on income, whether it's corporate income or individual income, then we don't have to worry because if your income has taken a big hit, you won't be contributing disproportionately at this time. And if your income is doing fine, you will. And so one of the things that we have some other research coming out about corporate tax evasion. Mm. And, you know, so Amazon and Netflix are two companies that have done extremely well during this recession and yet have not stepped up, are still not paying the the, the 21% corporate tax rate. In fact, in the case of Netflix, they're still paying less than 1% in 2020. Zoom's profits are up 4,000% during 2020, but they paid zero in federal corporate income taxes in 2020. So we really need to have a tax code that actually focuses on who's profitable at a particular time and really make sure that they contribute their fair share. Given the economic racial inequalities that have been exposed by COVID, what lessons can we take down to local revenue systems level? Yeah, and I would say that it's exactly that. I mean, it's raise revenue in as progressive as a way as possible. Raise it from high-earning individuals and wealthy individuals if possible, which is complicated, but but I think has a really exciting future. And raise it from corporations. And then use it to actually pay for things that we all need. Because one of the misconceptions is that corporations don't need a well-funded government. Well, corporations need a well-funded government more than any of the rest of us do, right? They need quality infrastructure to get their products out to market. They need a well-funded university system to fuel the research that they may need to do. They need a a well-funded K-12 system so that they can hire well-trained employees. So if you want a strong business economy in your locality or in your state, you better make sure that your services are really well-funded. How can municipal governments avoid relying on regressive taxes? I think that, you know, one of the big things is just use the progressive income tax, you know, use the income tax. Don't don't rely so heavily on, on the sales tax. And in using, you know, and, and so many, many localities do do this. I lived for years in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and we had a small income tax. So we can we can do that. And that will that will enable us to raise revenue in a progressive way. The other thing that I would say is that the property tax is a little bit complicated, especially when used to fund schools. And it ends up with a scenario where communities with high property values are able to raise a lot of revenue with a relatively low property tax rate, while communities with low property values have to impose much higher rates in order to raise comparable amounts of revenue. And if you have these real differences in wealth among communities, it's just going to be very, very challenging for the low-income and low-wealth communities to have equal quality in their school system. Mm -hmm. And so it really makes much more sense as much as possible to push funding up to the degree that we can have federal revenue collected and distributed to states and localities. That's ideal. And to the degree that we can have state collections at the state level that get redistributed to localities with an emphasis on restoring equity and um, helping the lower income communities, that's going to be a better way to go.
Speaking more on equity, how can municipal governments use procurement to create equity and opportunity? What you can do in municipal governments is you can make sure that you have certain standards in place for that procurement so that if you're purchasing items and you have some requirements for your own workforce, you can impose those kinds of requirements on the contractors from whom you're purchasing. So you can require that those contractors hire in an equitable way, um, hire in a racially equitable way, hire from the local community. You can require that those contractors don't fight unionization efforts among their employees. And you can even require that those contractors have some sort of community buy-in to what they're doing. Or you can certainly require that contracts have a sort of community buy-in. So there there are a lot of things you can do with procurement policy that I think can lead to a more equitable economic development. And when it comes to local economic development, how do tax cuts and tax incentives compare to public infrastructure, such as schools, roads, and hospitals? What are the pros and cons of each approach? There's just absolutely no question that what people need and what businesses need and what our planet needs is sort of high quality local infrastructure, state infrastructure, and federal infrastructure, and that we can only get that with a well-funded tax system. So certainly, you know, if we if we invest in early education, if we invest in education really from, from cradle to career, I like mm-hmm. to say, we can make sure that employers are going to have access to really well-trained workers, really highly skilled workers who can fulfill the things that they need in their place of employment. If we make sure that entities are held to high standards of not polluting or of cleaning up when they pollute or of, you know, environmentally equitable outcomes, again, we can ensure that there's sort of an even playing field, that you don't have one company that is kind of free riding on the public sector to clean up their pollution while another company is trying to comply with anti-pollution laws or, or green laws. And that requires environmental enforcement capacity at whatever level of government you're working with. So I think that, and and then, you know, certainly infrastructure, when we don't have broadband going to rural areas, it's going to be hard even for very new technology companies to succeed. So I think that there are just all kinds of ways that basic infrastructure and that new infrastructure being really well-funded helps the economy, helps corporations, and helps individuals, and that the best way to pay for that is, is through progressive taxes and corporate taxes and wealth taxes. Well, we see a lot of cities using things like fines, user fees, consumption taxes to collect revenue. Should these be used, or are there better methods of raising revenue? And can these types of revenue mechanisms be structured to be more progressive? Yeah, you know, I think we really want to get away from using fines and fees to fund anything in local government. The problem with that approach is that it basically penalizes poverty. So if you don't if you don't have the money to renew your car permit and you get pulled over and your tags are expired and then you get hit with a big fine, you you know, it's just this sort of endless cycle downward and you end up with low-income people really paying a disproportionate share because for wealthy people it's just not a big problem to pay for those renewals or, or whatever it is that um, that local government is requiring. So that's one, one negative consequence is it just ends up being very, very regressive in its impact. The second negative consequence is it ends up kind of criminalizing actions that are really just about being poor or about having a job that doesn't give you the leeway to escape during the middle of the day to, you know, get your tags updated. So it ends up criminalizing those actions 
which then can lead to further fines and fees, first of all, but can also lead to just over-criminalization, over-policing for things that aren't actually putting anyone in danger. And of course, this tends to have devastating effects for black and brown communities where interactions with the police are, are often really problematic. And so I think it makes much more sense to have a revenue system in place that is clear you know, there may be things that you have to have some fines and fees for because you want to ensure compliance, but it shouldn't be as a revenue raising measure. And there are there are even ways to structure them that that sort of get at when compliance when compliance comes about the, the fee or the fine is, is refunded. If a local government is going to offer an employer tax incentives, how can they make sure that the employer will be accountable and the community will receive meaningful benefits? Partnership for Working Families, which actually is Wisconsin and I think also Colorado-based, has done some great work on this, where if you can work with the local community and create community benefit agreements, you can bring in labor standards, environmental standards, and you can even bring in requirements for spending on things that, that the locality might need. So you can have a contract that includes public housing, for example, or includes some sort of creation of green space for the local community, or includes obviously labor standards, includes local hire standards, includes minority and female hire standards. So all of these things can make sure that when money is being spent in a local community in the name of economic development, it's actually done in a way that instead of just being a giveaway to a corporation for something that they would have done the same way anyway, it in fact is something that actually benefits the local community. And I should call out Good Jobs First, which has also done great work in this area, um, in addition to Partnership for Working Families. But I think community benefit agreements are a great, great tool for bringing this kind of thing about. How can activists and local officials convince business leaders to support fair taxation systems? Yeah, well, the community benefit agreement policy is really an activist-led policy. So you often have labor unions, community organizers, local residents kind of pioneering that. So I think that that is a really good way to bring local voice into these decisions. But I also think that for many activists, it's easy to think about what we want money spent on. And, you know, that's fair. I get it. But I think it, it is somewhat the job of, of researchers like those at my organization and those at the state think tanks that I've talked about to work with local activists to help kind of connect those dots that like, we're not gonna have a well-funded school. We're not gonna get this park funded. We're not gonna let this brownfield get cleaned up. We're not gonna have this toxic area of our city cleaned up unless we have the revenue to pay for those things. And that in fact, we can raise that revenue in a really fair way and we can use it in ways that, that are gonna kind of leave permanent benefits in this community. So I think it's a great, great issue for activists to get involved in. And I, I really encourage kind of researchers and activists to join hands on some of these things. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. And thank you to ITEP for their excellent work and contributions to the ProGov Policy Archives. If you wanna learn more about ITEP's policies, you can reach them at itep.org or you can search for their work at progov21.org. Next month, we have a very special environmental policy panel happening on our podcast. Our talented undergraduate research intern, Ada Inman, will be hosting the show. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>